The following program is paid for and presented by Skybridge Media, LLC. Hi, I'm Anthony Scaramucci. Welcome to Wall Street Week, the show of record for long-term investing. He predicted and greatly profited from this country's subprime mortgage crisis. He also predicted Greece's financial meltdown and Japan's banking crisis. He is Kyle Bass. And I'm Gary Kaminsky. Today, the outspoken hedge fund manager sits down with us to talk about his pessimistic view for the global economy and how you can profit from it. This show has never been solely about investments. We've talked about anything that affected people and their money. From Times Square in New York City, the new Wall Street Week. We're pleased to welcome Kyle Bass, principal and founder of Heyman Capital. Kyle, pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Anthony. You started in 2005. You've got this nest egg that you, your little defense purse, if you will, to go yep. start your own business. And what was it founded on? Is it a macro trading show? Well, my goal was to build a certain nest egg or net worth uh, over time uh, running Wall Street firms and um, in, in Dallas until I could have enough capital to invest a giant portion of my net worth and also have enough capital to live on until um, things worked worked out. So it's uh, uh, something I always planned on. I just uh, had to get to a certain day and I got to that day in uh, kind of December 2005. Well, um, you know there's right. a lot of people out here watching right now right. who say that's what I want to do but they don't ever pull the trigger. Yeah, no, it's a I think it's a it's a giant leap of faith but it's it's a it is the truest bet on yourself that you can make if you believe that you have the wherewithal to invest globally or however you're going to do it, if you're going to be domestic or global. But uh, from my perspective, I needed to have a number where I could take half of my net worth and put it in the fund and have the other half um, saved uh, for life's purposes, raising children, paying the house off, you know, basic things. It wasn't a huge number, but you go from making high six, low seven figures to all of a sudden a reversal and paying out most likely seven figures for a couple of years to hire a yeah. team and compliance and this. It's, but it's, it's like the American dream, right? So you started in 05. Now you're getting into 07, 08 territory. Yeah. There are warning lights on your dashboard about housing. Mm -hmm. Take our viewers through that. What were you seeing? And then why did you decide to make a public statement of it? I started to see deterioration in um, the trust remittance data from the RMB, from the residential trust. Okay, so we're going to need to explain that to viewers. So, right, what, are, so what is trust remittance data? Right. Trust remittance is, you know, uh, people's mortgages pay into, if they're securitized, basically someone gets a mortgage, the person that issues it, packages it up, sells it to a bank, an investment bank, and they sell it as securities. Uh, basically, it's just the delinquency data from... Um, households paying the mortgages. And so now you're seeing that creep up. It's got you concerned. And so it's then got what me do you concerned. do? So call it July 2006 uh, is when we started to really get short housing, uh, the housing bonds. Uh, and we launched a special purpose vehicle in September of 2006 that was pure subprime. And um, I launched it on uh, September 16th or 17th. And people say, why didn't you do, wait until October 1st, and that remittance data comes out on the 25th or 23rd, something that's in the 20th 
uh, of every month, and I couldn't wait for another data point because it was getting so bad I was afraid that the opportunity was going to go away. And so when did it really start to crack? Was it that next uh, remittance data piece so in September? No, or? the data continued to worsen uh, going into the end of 06 and the first crack in the marketplace for mortgage securities was February of 2007. Um, there was a, a crack of eight or nine points or eight or nine percentage points which was enormous because uh, because these bonds traded at par and only had between one and call it 3% interest rates. So uh, an 8% move was a disastrous move. Okay, so this was a phenomenal uh, financial success for yourself, Heyman Capital, right. and also for the uh, your client. Why was it that the Wall Street firms were able from the middle of 2006 up until really, let's say first quarter 2008, continue to sell all of these mortgage-related products? When they couldn't sell them anymore was um, the end of June 2007. So they just, they couldn't sell them anymore. So, so from Stop. June 2007 mm -hmm. uh, up until September 2008, that market was completely frozen. Yes. But there was things selling in the secondary market, right? There was no origination, but all right. of the underwriters continued to sell a lot of secondary product. They, they tried. But did they not see what you saw in terms of the, no, in, terms you know, of the in terms of the prepayment? I had a meeting at Bear Stearns, kind of an infamous meeting, right. in uh, November of 2006, where I had all of the work we had done on housing, uh, inc uh, median income, median home prices, and, and our thesis. I went to meet with their head of, head of risk management, Bobby Steinberg, and the room was full. It was one of those big conference rooms, and there are probably 25 people in there, and I walked them through my presentation, which was a big deal for me, because uh, I didn't want this market to move away from me um, while we were still getting invested. I walked them through, and I said, do you guys realize, looking at your balance sheet, if I'm right, what's going to happen to you? Right. And I said, you need to do something about this now. And you know, Steinberg put his arm around me as we were walking out of the room. He said, that's a really compelling presentation, and God, we hope you're wrong. I met with the Fed uh, as well. You know, they, they didn't want to believe. You know what the Fed's answer was, by the way. The Fed said, "Here are models. Right, home prices track incomes." So they didn't know whether it was the dog or the tail. So they said, "Incomes are doing this, so therefore we don't see home prices moving down." That was what the Fed said to me um, mm -hmm. in, in well, early two thousand seven. Because they weren't paying attention to what some of the some of the people that were actually getting credit to buy homes. Yeah. How do you think the central bank of the United States and others did during the crisis? And what do you, where do you think they are right now? I think they made a really um, significant error uh, during the crisis. I don't think that there was uh, enough of a, of a flush of bad activity uh, and bad investing back then. And, and the point is when the banks and investment banks came to the Fed and uh, wanted the Feds to bail them out, you know, uh, the, the, the taxpayers ended up bailing out the bankers. Goldman Sachs exists today because they were made a bank holding company and so does Morgan Stanley. Back then, um, I don't think they would have made it, um, you know, if not for the Fed stepping in. So Goldman Sachs would have been bankrupt effectively? I don't, I don't know if it would be bankrupt. It would be a, a part of another institution like Bear is at J.P. Morgan. What do you think about the central banking community today and where it is post-crisis? They only have uh, one arrow in their quiver and it's monetary policy. You know, you, you probably had Bernanke sitting here and, and he said uh, at events with you and I together, uh, he said that, that what we try to do is flood the market with excess liquidity mm -hmm. and put the ball in Congress's court to change fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. Well, in the end, what it did was give Congress the capacity and the ability and the desire to just keep spending.
Are you short China? Well, so we're not short Chinese equities per se. Wall Street Week is sponsored in part by Hightower, an unobstructed view. Imagine a business built on the premise that delivering straightforward financial advice is the right thing to do. A firm that places investor trust at its foundation, rising above the discord of an industry compromised by conflicts of interest. Hightower is the new blueprint for financial advice. We live by the fiduciary standard, a legal pledge to put our clients' interests first. Not because fiduciary is the latest fad, but because it's what we were built to do. I used to dread getting up and going to work. I was done with the corporate grind. I was tired of being a starving artist. And I started looking around for a business that I believed in, and I kind of wanted to do something a little more green. My score mentor helped me take the first step. He helped me create a business plan and helped me implement it. They've really taught me how to think big. SCORE helped me to make the unimaginable possible all for free. I'm here because of SCORE. I'm here because of SCORE. Get your free business mentor at SCORE.org. Raising rates after nine years. Mistake, too late, too early, what? I think that once you hit the zero lower bound uh, in an effort to go, let's say, below the hard deck so that you don't have to restructure anything, I think that that zero lower bound is going to keep you there almost forever. So our rate, our rate cycle, whatever it may be, whether it's um, 50, 100, 150 basis points, that will be it. Rates will not normalize in our lifetime. Why won't rates normalize in our because lifetime? Because they can't. Yeah. It's globally, uh, we all went to the gas pedal, right? We all went to the gas pedal with creating money. Now we have this interesting kind of debt-led deflationary bust that we're seeing emanate from Asia and come across the globe today with whether it's crude oil or copper or iron ore, you name it. In the end, what happens is uh, the currencies end up settling the score, uh, the cross rates of uh, various global currencies. Okay, so what happened was you had a tremendous amount of excess liquidity. Mm -hmm. It led to uh, overcapacity in factory buildup, overcapacity in creating cities in China, and now you've got all this SX capacity that's putting pressure on prices. That's right. Uh, so that's creating deflation, uh, and you should be worried about deflation because why? When you have deflation in an environment where the debts are so large, the debts grow when the, when the currency is Okay, deflated. so again, usually this important to explain. This is something you've been talking about for several years. So this is an economic term called debt destruction. And so mm -hmm. what ends up happening is the debt stays constant while wages are going down. So the average American owning $200,000 of debt, owing $200,000 of debt with a $50,000 income, if their income goes down or it gets cut in half, their capacity to service that debt has also been halved, or in real terms, their debt is actually double. When you look at opportunities as an investor right now, what's the greatest opportunity if you had to say to the viewer, we saw what was happening subprime US, and this is what we see now? Given our views on credit contraction in Asia and in China in particular going through a, let's say they're gonna go through a banking loss cycle like we, like we went through in the GFC, there's one thing that's gonna happen. China's gonna have to dramatically devalue its currency. Now that's not something the readership can um, really can get your arms around it, but it's really tough to invest uh, as a non-professional investor, if you you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I that think devaluation, that's because of its uh, interconnectivity with the rest of the world economy, is going to also upset the world economy. It's going to cause a slower growth dynamic for everybody. That's right. So, well, uh, it also has implications on the U.S. dollar. I mean, so while you can't necessarily play the China devaluation, it's uh, 
in terms of the U.S. dollar, what does it mean? It means a stronger dollar. And, right, for, and, for, and for many, many years. Now. As we know, China many years ago attached their currency uh, to the dollar uh, because I, I think they hitched their wagon to our star very smartly uh, back then because our goal in the United States was to depreciate our dollar through uh, inflation. So right. we issue debt to the rest of the world. We depreciate our dollar. We actually uh, end up paying off, getting... Uh, you're monetizing uh, the debt. So well, we're monetizing we're the you're, debt. You're at, able at, to pay at, the, the debt back at, with dollars that are worth less than the ones that you borrow. That's exactly right. And so now uh, the real problem is China has hitched their wagon to our star and their currency has effectively appreciated about 60% versus the rest of the world since 2005. So they're, they're going to let it go. And, and it's the US what's killing them. Right. They're going to let it go and the U.S. dollar is going to be the beneficiary. Well, let's explain to viewers why yeah. it's killing them. And yeah. so what's happening is as their currency is appreciating, their goods and services that are being produced in China and sold around the world have become more expensive as a result of that appreciating currency. That's right. So as we all know, um, there, was a, there was a labor arbitrage between U.S. labor rates and Chinese labor rates. And the, the open, the free and open global economy, call it free trade, uh, enabled that arbitrage to, to normalize itself. And this phenomenon helped normalize it quicker, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so China's effective exchange rate moving up versus the rest of the world made their goods and services a little bit more expensive each year. And now it's kind of that labor arbitrage is gone. And if that labor arbitrage is gone, and they their banking system has expanded 400% seven years without a non-performing loan cycle. My view is that we're going to see a non-performing loan cycle. So, so Jim Chanos was on the show a few months back, very negative on China mm. because of many of the things that you're saying. Are you short China? Well, so we're not short Chinese equities per se, but we are, um, we're very uh, invested in the Chinese currency. Uh, given this thesis, we think you're going to see a pretty material devaluation. Okay. And we think it's going to be in the next 12 to 18 months. I want to switch to a different topic because you have a very high profile right now in your case against patents in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've also made some bet against those companies. So explain to our viewers why you're against uh, these drug patents. You know, these people call patent trolls that buy intellectual property that's not even being used sometimes, and they go sue everyone alleging a breach. Tech was saying that it was costing them billions a year. They wanted that. Uh, process gone. So what they did is they formed this, they, it got, they got this law passed. It formed a, a, an office in the U.S. Patent Office called the Patent Trial and Appeals Board. And it makes it an 18-month start-to-finish process that only costs, only, um, call it less than a million dollars a patent, where if you're in federal court, it can cost two, three, four million dollars a patent, and it can last five or six years before you get resolution. So this process came about for tech and what pharma didn't realize is that it could be used a, against any intellectual property. Well, when I started looking at uh, the drug patents, uh, and I know drug prices are something that are front and center on everyone's mind today, but just go back to February when we filed our first uh, challenge, no one was talking about drug prices. You always heard someone say, well, they're runaway drug prices, but no one was doing anything about it. Uh, and what we, what we started realizing is when pharmaceutical companies have patents that, are, that have you know, these 20-year lifespans and they're about to roll off patent, if they just change the dosage, let's say a dosage was 10 milligrams twice right, a day. It, it gets extended. They go to 20 milligrams once a day, it's a new patent and they keep that monopoly that's government-backed. You're going up against some of these great, huge global pharmaceutical companies that have massive legal teams and have massive lobbying efforts. Um, 
What's that been like? It's not been fun. Yeah. No, it uh, hasn't what, been fun. What about their argument, though, that they need these patents and possibly this gimmickry, these extension of the patents, to keep their R&D pipelines going so that they can continue their new drug discoveries? So look, look at the R&D pipeline and look at what they spend on it. You know, global pharmaceutical companies spend three times their R&D budget on marketing every year. They have gross margins higher than that of Google. Well, just watch TV. I mean, you can't. You can't watch, watch TV you without can't an watch ad TV coming without on seeing TV. A, a, a television. Gary's ad. particularly focused on one or two don't, of those advertisements. Anthony, I'm not going to tell you which ones they are. Anthony, and it has I, nothing Anthony, to do with cholesterol. Anthony, okay, I, I see that Cialis ad running. Oh, in the yeah, here, we go. here he goes. Here, here we go. go. Couldn't help himself. <laughs> <laughs> when you're investing, is it always about the money? Or is there also is there also a social good? No. Uh, well, so this one's been fun. You know, when we were in the housing market. You know, as you know, uh, many people thought we somehow caused uh, the the global financial crisis, and that has literally had nothing to do with. And it was all going to happen with or without us. And what we were doing uh, in the subprime market was uh, to to bring it down to kind of layman's terms. We were playing fantasy football, right? Uh, we were putting putting on contracts that were uh, bets on existing bonds that. Um, other CDO managers are willing to take the bets on. So it's professional to professional. In this case, in the drugs, when I win, everybody wins. The only person that loses are the shareholders and the management teams of the companies so that I'm challenging. Be, they have to be a little worried about this, though, because public opinion is decidedly with you. Many of the Amer members of the American Congress is decidedly with you. So if you were a CEO at one of these companies now, what would be your move? Well, they have, um, they have dramatically increased their lobbying budgets. They have uh, hired a hundred lobbying teams to fight us alone. They have basically spent everything they can spend to fight us, and um, it's been a, it's been a tough fight. I'll tell you that. But uh, we we look through all eleven thousand patents in the drug orange book, the chemical molecules, and um, we actually ran a contest in all of our legal teams to find the worst ones they could find. This has nothing to do with the fund. It has no financial. Uh, impact on uh, on any investments at all. We have no positions, but one of them is um, the Michael Jackson drug, Popofol, the one that he mm -hmm. OD'd on. Is the it's a World Health Organization essential medicine, and it's uh, the anesthetic for about 80 percent of surgeries in the U.S. It is ubiquitous in emergency rooms and operating rooms mm -hmm. in our country. There's only one patent that protects that drug. That drug rolled off patent long ago. But guess what protects that? The rubber stopper that's on the vial. It's a siliconized rubber stopper. That's the intellectual property protecting Diprovan, the okay, drug. So, there's a little so bit there are some stupid things there, out there and, that were And that so were over out the next five years, you, you, you intend on winning a lot of this stuff. I didn't enter it to not win. If I'm a true long-term investor, yeah. is this the best place I should be thinking about allocating capital right yeah. now? Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Wall Street Week is sponsored in part by Coke Industries. We are Coke. Two-thirds of our planet is covered in it. So why do nearly 800 million people suffer from lack of clean water around the world? That's completely unacceptable to me. And that is why I'm working on a way to solve this global problem. Like here in Sao Paulo, Brazil. By taking the polluted water we already have and providing technologies to filter it back into clean water. My name is Manny, Senior VP of Technology. We are Coke. Checking your fantasy league? Nah, just my 401k statement. <laughs>
I can't seem to save anything. I got a pizza for a Todd. Hey, can somebody spot me? When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. You're down in Dallas. I've actually been down there, been to the ranch. You've got a lot of distress down there right now, what's mm. happening in the energy world. Mm. I gotta believe you see some opportunity in what's happening. I think there is a massive opportunity in energy. Yeah. And my views are dogmatic about the supply and demand situation in energy, and that's cost me this year. I know um, this so has been one of our worst years in the last 10. Okay, so let's talk about the dogma of your views. What are your views? In, in energy, I just believe that, first of all, the margin of safety for the globe is the smallest it's ever been in energy. So global demand is like 96 million barrels a day, right. the highest it's ever been. And uh, let's say incremental supply capacity, uh, let's say swing capacity, is at the lowest point as a percentage of that, about a million and a half barrels a day. But that's because so, prices have come down, so the marginal producers come off market? No, it's, uh, I mean, the marginal, the, 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 there are very few marginal producers that have come off the market. U.S. production uh, at its peak was 9.6, and today it's 9.2. Only 400,000 barrels a day has been shaved off U.S. production. OPEC production is continuing to move higher. Right. right? It's 32 million barrels a day. And so that's it, in order to help them protect their market share? It's, it is all of OPEC, I think, but, trying to put think, marginal producers here out think, of business. If you've got a scenario where the global economy is going to slow down. A little bit. A little bit. Isn't that the direct correlation with the energy assets? So, um, look, global GDP will still be positive. It's not going to be 4%. It's not going to be 35 It might only be 2%. Uh, which in, on a, uh, a, when you look at scale, right, that's a huge number. It's $1.4 uh, trillion. Dollars. It's a massive amount of money, but it's still growth. Incrementally, there's, there's, there's new demand for crude every year, depending upon what global GDP is and, and demand response. Point being, um, uh, right now, I think we have a glut of maybe 600,000, 700,000 barrels a day. You have to realize that US, the U.S. added a million barrels a day five years in a row, but it took $100 crude for us to do that. We were the marginal swing producer for the world, and now we're going to go down a million barrels a day, I think, in the next 12 months. Uh, so we're going to go from a glut to all of a sudden a deficit, and the world's not ready for a deficit. So, so, I, so I think I'm, a year or two from now. If I'm a true long-term investor, yeah. is this the best place I should be thinking about allocating capital right yeah, now? Yeah, if you're going to allocate capital for the next three to five years, you should do it now into the energy space. Yeah, call it in the next six months, that's when you buy it. And is it infrastructure, pipelines, is it producers, upstream, downstream, where? where, where? It just depends where you have expertise. Those businesses are, are dominated by those that have expertise in each of those verticals, and um, you better get with those people uh, to decide where in the cap structure to invest, because these MLPs, you know, the upstream MLPs, their, their equities trade for pennies, their, their subordinated debt trades in the 20s and 30s, and their senior debt trades in the 80s, no one knows when they file bankruptcy, which many of them will, um, what are the best securities to own? Because the equity is probably going to get wiped out. The subordinated debt might get wiped well, out. Well, just final point. Though, so I'm saying it's, it's a really difficult answer to tell a crowd like this. Well, understood. Uh, we're, not, to go. You know, we're, not, we're not trying to pick specific stocks. But yeah. just put... No, but you have you, a contrary and near-term view on energy. You reference housing recovery mm -hmm. post-2009. Yeah. Would you... Describe the rebound in energy when it happens. Is it, it going to be a similar type of rebound? Uh, it will be 
there aren't many instruments that are available in the energy market yeah, that the are housing available market in the housing market. It was way market. more liquid than yeah. the energy market. It was an easier yeah. way to make that investment. Well, you know, you used to always talk about hard assets. Maybe the best thing to do is go out and buy a couple of rigs that are just sitting there and probably trading way below book value. Or for, for this crowd that we're talking to, um, all you do is go buy an, uh, a crude oil ETF. Right. Uh, because that way you don't have to bet on a specific management company. You don't have to worry about a cap structure. You just bet on the You just supply, bet on supply demand and, and demand. Yep. And uh, if you can hang on to that for 18 months, two years, I think you're going to do yeah, really well. Hi, I'm Ken Lango. I'm Carl Icahn. I'm Ben Bernanke. Barry Rosenstein. Larry Summers. Jeffrey Gunlock. Dick Grasso. Lizanne Saunders. David Rubenstein. Andre Agassi. Jeff Smith. Lee Cooperman. I'm Dave Petraeus. Don Drabkin. Jim Chados. Byron Wien. I'm watching Wall Street Week. I'm watching Wall Street Week. I watch Wall Street Week. I watch Wall Street Week. I'm watching Wall Street Week. I was a guest on the original Wall Street Week. I was on the old Wall Street Week. And I'm pleased to be on the brand new Wall Street Week. And I hope you are too. And you should too. I'm sure you will too. Banking on Wells Fargo, Bank of America, or J.P. Morgan Chase? They're all components of XLF, the financial sector spider ETF, which includes over 75 financial stocks in the S&P 500 to help add diversification and minimize single stock risk. Why invest in a single financial stock when you can own the entire financial sector of the S&P 500? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Go to sectorspiders.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. Visit us on the web at sectorspiders.com. You can join millions of Americans turning off the old media for Newsmax TV. We're in over 40 million homes on DirecTV Channel 349, Dish Channel 223, and Verizon Fios Channel 115. And we're available online at NewsmaxTV.com or on Roku and Google TV. Plus, you can watch us anywhere in the world. Just download our free Newsmax TV app from your iPhone or Android. Do it today and find out why millions are tuning in Newsmax TV. For real news, better talk. Wall Street Week is sponsored in part by Morgan Stanley, where capital creates change. I took an interest in helping a gentleman by the name of Chris Kyle, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote the book The American Sniper, uh, ultimately became a uh, fantastic movie directed by Clint Eastwood. Tell us a little bit about Chris Kyle and your experiences with him. It was, uh, yeah, I met him through really happenstance. I, when I went to go uh, enter a more, uh, let's say, disciplined and extreme uh, workout regimen. I went out to the West Coast and did this program called SEAL Fit uh, with a guy named Mark Devine. And Mark was the reserve commander for SEAL Team 3. Chris was on SEAL Team 3. Uh, and um, I got to know a few of the guys while I was out there. I didn't meet Chris when I was out there until um, Mark called me one day and said, hey, there's a, there's a guy that you need to meet that wants to move back to Texas. And um, I met Chris, we became friends. Um, I actually moved him in with my family and um, started a business for him, just trying to reintegrate him into um, society a little bit. And that's how I got to meet him. And it, was a, it was a great relationship and um, it, was, it was fun to try to help him reintegrate into society. What, what is that daily training like, that SEAL training? It's awful. I mean, it's. Well, what, uh, do you, what do you actually. Yeah, well, so this guy, what this guy does is he trains the SEALs that are about to enter into the BUDS program. Right. Uh, and then he dumbs it down for, um, for people like us. Um, so, but, you, but you work out alongside these, you know, early 20 high teens kids that are, you know, super freaks with their bodies. Um, you just do less weight, but you do as many reps and you work as hard as they do. Um, it's, a, it's, an, it's an amazing program uh, where you'll lose 
an enormous amount of weight in a, in a, in a week. But it's um, not just weight training. It's, it's, uh, it's running. It's oh, yeah. I mean, it's swimming. It's running. It's weights. It's, um, it's jujitsu. It's mental activities. It's everything. But, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's worth doing if what you're trying to do is get, get fit. Excellent. Uh, what do you do when you're not managing money? I mean, I've spent some time with you outside of the business yeah. world. Tell, tell the viewers, what do you do? Yeah, I, um, I love uh, hanging out with my kids, traveling. I love reading and spearfishing and hanging out um, in the wine country. Okay, drinking wine, spearfishing, and reading a book. Yeah. Pretty good combination. Yeah. I want to thank Kyle Bass for spending time today with Wall Street Week. That's it for today. You can check in with us all week at wallstreetweek.com. Until next Sunday, have a prosperous week. Presented by Skybridge Media, LLC.